Welcome to episode 79 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is a Q&A episode where we'll be discussing whether it's beneficial to force increased mitochondrial respiration with supplements, how to determine the ideal amount of pro-metabolic supplements to take, what to do if you react poorly to collagen or gelatin protein powders, whether food additives like carrageenan, gums, nitrates, sorbates, MSG, microbial enzymes, cultures, and artificial colors are worth avoiding, and whether we need to be concerned about hyperthyroidism and whether hyperthyroidism can be caused by oversupplementing thyroid hormone. Today's episode is a Q&A episode. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can leave those in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or send those in by email to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at j-a-y-feldmanwellness.com. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast. You can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe that's chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, joint pain, poor sleep or insomnia, brain fog, digestive symptoms, hormonal imbalances, or various other low energy symptoms or chronic health issues, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So Dean asks, does it make sense for someone to force themselves to be to better be able to oxidize glucose with things like niacinamide, aspirin, and B1? And he used force in parentheses here, but kind of getting at what the question is, which is that a lot of pro-metabolic supplements will drive the production of, of uh, energy from glucose, drive the oxidation of glucose. And is that a good thing? Basically, if you're not already oxidizing that amount of glucose, is that a problem? Is that beneficial? Doesn't make sense is, is basically the question here. And I think it's a really helpful question. We've talked a lot about how in the bioenergetic space, a lot of these supplements are looked at as beneficial and, and understandably so they, they are generally beneficial. And because of that, they're often recommended to be used and people sometimes be using a ton of these supplements. And We've both talked about how we'll have people come to us and be doing worse because of all these supplements that they're on and uh, sometimes those basically causing some problems more or less because of this situation where you're kind of forcing the, the oxidation of glucose, so to speak. So another way to think of it or a way that I like to think of it is that a lot of these pro-metabolic supplements, and it depends on the specifics, it depends on the mechanisms, and maybe we'll talk about some of the specifics there, but 
a lot of them are basically pressing down the the gas pedal of your car and uh that's going to drive the production of energy drive the the uh, production of energy from fuel into the engine and that can be a really great thing to do if you've got enough fuel and if your engine's working really well and it can handle that whereas a lot of times the the issues that people are experiencing lead them to for one have issues with their engine where they're not properly producing energy there's various things blocking it or they're also not taking in enough fuel or both which is most common the case the most commonly the case and so when that happens if you then press on the gas pedal, you tend to make things a lot worse. Uh, you tend to drive stress, essentially, in a, in a physiological way. You're basically uh, driving up the energy demands when there's a low amount of energy supply. And what that does is it causes stress in order to make up for the lack of energy supply. And that requires stress hormones. It requires dipping into uh, the stress pathways of metabolism. And over time, causes a lot of problems. And I think, again, whether it's using thyroid hormone he mentioned niacinamide, aspirin, and B1, but also uh, caffeine, any of the pro-metabolic hormones, pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA, and on from there. A lot of these will have that effect. And so there is, and I'll, I'll let you go in a second, and maybe we'll kind of talk about the balance here and when it does make sense to use these and and uh, what kind of factors you want to consider. I mean, I think it's all, all it's a matter of dose. I think like if That's you're a, under yeah. stress, using a 325 aspirin, is not you know you're not slamming the gas pedal too hard but i think like if i've seen people want to use like grams of aspirin a day like i haven't seen that work out too well for many people and then like with b1 like i notice even for me like a very noticeable beneficial effect from b1 but i also aren't am not taking heroic doses of it so i think that you know then a lot of times for a lot of people a little bit will go a long way uh what was the other one you said niacinamide same thing with niacinamide like if if i take a huge like a huge dose of niacinamide like 500 milligrams in one sitting like i won't feel well i'll get like a weird breathlessness and be uncomfortable but if i use smaller doses i'll be okay so and i think even i think the caps i have are either 100s or 500s and i don't do a whole cap like i just do a i'll do a little bit and i, I think for a lot of people to progressive and slow or gradual, it doesn't have to be slow, but gradual process of getting better. And there's no need to force things in mm-hmm. the right direction. I think it's it's more of like a, a gentle approach. I think it works better. And that's coming from doing multiple slamming approaches and just hurting myself and experimenting with things and doing too much and causing problems. So I think a general approach of, you know, I, I kind of see it like a pyramid or I describe it like a pyramid. It's not exactly a pyramid, but get the diet right. And then get your baseline or what I call a core stack of supplements, right? Which are, you know, the general anti-stress things, which tend to be vitamins and minerals. Make sure that that's balanced. And then you can start to move towards, I guess this would be considered orthomolecular approach. It's technically an allopathic approach in the sense that you're still dumping in huge pharmaceutical quantities of, of different compounds and rather than physiologic quantities or of different compounds. So, and can it be helpful in certain circumstances, like in deficiencies or in some certain circumstances, like even dire circumstances? Yes. But I think for anybody who wants to get themselves back to baseline health, a gradual approach is probably the best course of action and smaller doses and, you know, finding out the amounts and the which compounds work for you. And if you have a bad experience, you know, limiting that for a period of time. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and again, there's a lot of individuality here because of some of those things you mentioned. So for example, you said 500 milligrams of B3 in a sitting will, will sometimes cause breathlessness and issues for you. I've taken a couple of grams or a gram and a half, maybe more, maybe a couple of grams in the sitting and not had a problem at all. Uh, and I've seen the same thing with clients, whereas others, you know, 100 milligrams, 150 milligrams will cause uh, some stress induction. And it, it's going to depend on the context of that moment, right? That point in your life, that point in the day, how much fuel you have on hand, how what your needs are, all of those things are going to are going to come into play. And and same thing like when we consider aspirin. So you mentioned, you know, 325 milligrams of aspirin should be in general not an issue, even if you are under stress, whereas a couple grams, maybe that's an issue, or a gram, maybe that's an issue. And again, I think part of that also comes down to some of the specifics here, where aspirin doesn't work the same as caffeine, doesn't which doesn't work the same as as B1, right? There we we need to be considering the mechanisms for how these things are supporting us metabolically and we can't go into the mechanisms for all of these individual supplements and you know because there's there's a lot going on here but in general what i would say is that and you mentioned this in terms of the pyramid is that first you want to make sure you've got those foundations in place right you've you're getting enough of the various nutrients you're also getting enough fuel on board and you're also doing the things that are removing the blocks of the the things that are inhibiting energy production PUFA, endotoxin, potentially nutrient deficiencies. Irritants. Yeah, various irritants, anything that's driving stress or inflammation. Yeah, yeah. And and so if, and again, because if those things are not blocked and you take a lot of any of these things, a lot of pregnenolone or progesterone or thyroid or, you know, potentially even small amounts of those things, or again, B1, niacinamide, caffeine, methylene blue, if you do those things, it will be more likely to drive stress as opposed to actually helping with your with your symptoms or actually helping to support your metabolism. You're actually going to uh, end up driving it in the wrong direction. So that's why it's so key to make sure you're addressing those foundations first, removing those blocks. And as you were getting at, the next piece here is testing, especially with small doses of these different supplements and really paying attention to how you feel and not just using anything because you're supposed to or because it's supposed to be beneficial but keeping an eye on what you're experiencing in terms of your symptoms and paying attention to any signs of stress induction of, of, yeah, you know, you'll notice signs of adrenaline, heart racing, maybe cold hands and feet, maybe irritability, anxiety, Mm anxiety is, I think a big one for a lot of these substances and people take it, you push the gas pedal and I know for niacinamide breathlessness is a huge one, Mm -hmm. but then also the anxiety. And then for aspirin, I have seen people absolutely wreck their stomach taking heroic doses of aspirin to try it and like taking it on a regular basis because they saw on the on some forum or an article that x grams of doses of aspirin does xyz there's always there are side effects to a lot of these things even vitamins at Mm -hmm. pharmacy or super physiologic dosages you have to be careful a lot of people that i've worked with don't respond well to the B100 complex vitamins because the dosage on all of the B vitamins is too high. And there are like, for example, some of the methylated B vitamins interact with enzymes involved with dopamine and norepinephrine and and other compounds and other neurotransmitters. And you start pushing the the balance or the pedal in one direction too hard and people start to get weird symptoms. So it's important to find the correct dose and, and moderate that dose for yourself and also certain compounds. Um, 
you know, some you may not respond well to niacinamide, but you do okay with thiamine and you do okay with aspirin, or maybe you do okay with methylene blue, but you don't do well with coffee. Like these are all of these options. All of these things are potential options. Now you want to be hitting your vitamins and minerals and macronutrients on a regular basis. That's, that's, there's no question there, but whether you go into like farm, like, like high, high doses of things, well, then you have to start saying, okay, what am I, you know, am I tolerating this or not? And then to maybe determine why you're not tolerating it or not, or just don't do 500 milligrams or a gram of niacinamide three times a day. Um, so yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of individuality and you have to, that's something that a lot of times you have to figure out through your personal experimentation. Yeah. And I do think there can be a place for three grams of niacinamide a day or a couple grams of aspirin a day. You mentioned some of the potential issues with aspirin in terms of its intestinal or effects on the stomach as well. And I think you've mentioned in the past, or we've talked in the past about how glycine and vitamin C are generally protective against any of those damaging effects. So those are things to consider in that case. But yeah, there's a lot of individuality. Again, there are some people who will take 100 milligrams of niacinamide and feel anxiety and others who will take a gram of niacinamide before bed and it helps them sleep. So generally, as we mentioned, foundations first. And I do think there is a place for these things. Uh, again, starting with small doses and, and potentially working up depending on, again, what you're experiencing and what your needs are and making sure that you're understanding the mechanisms for these different supplements and why you're using them as opposed to just using them because you're supposed to or because somebody mentioned it at one point. And yeah, I think that there's great potential in using them when those foundations are in place and you're at a point where you can step on that gas pedal a little bit and maybe you've adapted so far into a stress state that you need some help digging your way out and sometimes super physiological doses of vitamins like b1 or b3 can help especially if there's a deficiency prior uh and sometimes high doses of some of these other things can help too and sometimes regular doses can help but again there's a place for these things and at the same time we the if there are blocks going on, we don't want to just add them on on top of those. It will just make it worse and drive that stress further. But if you're at a place where you're starting to do pretty well, a lot of your symptoms are improving. Maybe you've used small doses of these to help along that way. Uh, there might be a point for increasing doses of them after that point. Again, when you're starting to do well, but maybe progress is slowed. It's not like you're experiencing new symptoms or worse symptoms, but rather it's just we're looking for further improvement or progressing at a faster rate. Those are situations where I might use these outside of specific instances, right? Where high doses of niacinamide or aspirin can help for fungal infections, let's say. So outside of those specific instances, these are, these would be some, um, you know, some context. Again, I probably wouldn't be doing high doses of niacinamide or aspirin for a fungal infection unless those foundations were in place anyway. So, uh, yeah, kind of applies in both senses. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't have much to add to that one. Perfect. Well, let's move on then. So I hope I'm pronouncing this name right. Syrah or Syra asks about protein sources while avoiding collagen. She says, is gelatin safe? And this is a, something that I've seen quite often where people will react poorly to collagen or gelatin protein powders, sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both. And there can be a multitude of reasons for that. Sometimes it has to do with the quality of the product. Sometimes it has to do with some sensitivity to histamine or something else along those lines, or even some issues with glycine. Uh, if someone's dealing with maybe oxalate issues, which again, I think is relatively rare where this would actually be an issue, but can happen. Uh, so there's instances where someone might react poorly to those things. There's also 
again, in some poor product, like some not good quality products, there might be uh, contaminants. Potentially, also, there's some some discussion that there could be some endotoxin in, uh, inside the the collagen or gelatin. So, I think the simplest thing here, which kind of goes back to something we talk about a lot, is that if you're not reacting well to it, avoid it. Don't don't continue using it at the time. And if that is the case, and you're not able to do collagen protein powder or gelatin protein powder, one you can always try the other one. Um, but you can also try to get these things from food, which is something that in general, I recommend trying to do first anyway, prior to the powders, because you have the possibility of contamination and whatnot. So, uh, making bone broths or making any meat that has a bone in it or has a lot of connective tissue in it will be a good way to get that, uh, gelatin protein, the collagen protein in your diet. Some people also react poorly to those again, maybe some of those same issues, uh, in which case you could use like a, a glycine supplement. Most people are are fine with that. That would be kind of my last option normally. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is she said just for protein sources. So, I mean, you have all types of fish, you have all types of seafood, yeah, yeah. you have chicken, you have or lean cuts of, of fowl, and you have all types of red meat. And then you also have dairy and you have whey protein and eggs. There's a eggs there's a there's an endless number of protein sources you don't have to use collagen or gelatin i don't really use much collagen or gelatin because i don't do well with it and even the collagenous cuts they don't 100 percent sit well with me so i mean there's there's a ton of different options available if you're wanting i mean you pretty much cover the spectrum for collagen and gelatin sources collagen hydrolysate gelatin uh, like bone broths and cooking meat on the bone and then glycine supplements mm-hmm. the the main benefit of the collagen and gelatin is the the glycine content and then the minimization of some of the other amino acids but if you're not tolerating any of those options well there's a whole bunch of other protein sources that are just fine to work with on a regular basis yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we would never say that you want this to be your primary source of protein anyway, right? This is something that is important yeah 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 you need to have those other amino acids in there as well uh the ones that are in the muscle meat or in the dairy or in the eggs uh but we want to be balancing that out with the highly glycine rich protein sources again glycine they also have hydroxyproline in there and proline and uh, normally some yeah some other benefits to them as well Uh, but those being the main ones and so yeah it is important to make sure you're getting a source of at least glycine uh, we talked in the past about that balance between glycine and methionine. That's that's such a big focus, and basically the detrimental effects of excess methionine can be reversed just by adding in some glycine. So, if you're not able to tolerate the foods that contain collagen or gelatin, and you're not able to tolerate the protein powders that are collagen or gelatin based, then a glycine supplement would probably be worth worth trying at that point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the that would be the best course of action as well. Perfect. All right. So the next question is from Xavier, and he's asking about food additives, specifically MSG, carrageenan, lecithin, citric acid, ascorbic acid, uh, nitrates, sorbates, xanthan, which is uh, xanthan gum, I'm assuming. And he say he asks which ones of these are harmful and which ones are fine. And we did an episode in the past talking about a few of these. We talked about citric acid ascorbic acid and soy lecithin specifically uh it was episode 39 but i'll I'll link back to that in the show notes so 
I'll go back and listen to that in terms of our answers for those. And just just for a bit of context, in terms of those, it's it's one of those situations where they can be potentially harmful, but those ones tend not to be so harmful that they should be avoided at all costs. But a lot of that's going to depend on your individual situation. And that is the case with some of these additives, but not all of them. I would say some of them are worth avoiding entirely. So the first of those would be carrageenan. And this is one that is pretty well known for its toxic effects. Uh, it's not allowed to be in foods in, I want to say, all throughout Europe, maybe just the UK. Uh, of course, it is allowed to be in foods here. But anyway, there's, there's some knowledge about its its issues, some uh, concerns about being carcinogenic, but also it's pretty reliably able to drive inflammation, especially in the intestines and the gut. It's a pretty major driver of, of gut inflammation and uh, irritation. And yeah, it's, that's seen pretty ubiquitously. And I've seen it have that effect in the amounts that are in foods and, and quite a few people where it's almost like a poisoning effect. Uh, that it really, really will can dramatically induce some inflammatory symptoms and really set someone's symptoms off uh, for sometimes several days or even a couple of weeks. Uh, and some people who are particularly sensitive. For reference, also carrageenan is normally found in dairy products, uh, ice creams, sometimes like cream cheese or creams. Uh, it's used as a I want to say a stabilizer, and. Yeah, so it's that's generally the main place you'll find it. You'll find it in some other packaged foods as well. So it's something you want to keep uh, look for if you you know look out for if you're uh, checking a label. But yeah, what th- this is one that would fall in that category for me of ones that I would really really go out of my way to avoid it. Uh, it's also again anytime you're finding commercial ice cream, especially soft serve, it's probably going to be in there. You can normally find ingredients online or or at the place that you're getting it from if you uh, ask for them. But yeah, it's something to certainly be aware of and one that I would go out of my way to avoid for sure. I would try to avoid all of them if possible and stick to as much whole foods as you can. Um, Of course. In the sense that if you're going to have juice, 100% juice, if you're going to have fruit, then fruit. If you're going to have meat, then meat. If you're going to have, you know, dairy, then dairy. Whatever it is, like to just have the singular ingredient or if you have mixtures of things to, to avoid all of the stabilizers emulsifiers preservatives etc i would say the ones that are i i personally i think that in a, the other thing too is when they list ingredients on a product the first ingredients are nor at least in the united states the first ingredients are normally the most prevalent ingredients and then the last yeah. listed ingredients are usually the, the least so like for example there's a company here called tate's bake shop that makes chocolate chip cookies the chocolate chip cookies ingredients are all fine, except they have xanthan gum as the last ingredient or one of the last ingredients. So it's a mar- like a marginal amount. I still think it's problematic. However, like I don't think that marginal amount is terrible, but I wouldn't rec like overall. I still wouldn't recommend those as be like the main carb source for somebody. I think a lo- I think pretty much all of these are problematic. Um, and I know for certain people, the citric acid is especially allergenic. And I think uh, Georgie posted a study about that, which I actually have on my computer here, about the citric acid um, coming from a, the aspirillogist Niger mold and then mm-hmm. being contaminated. And I've seen quite a few people react poorly to it. I react poorly to it. Um, and then the list, I think the least worst on here that I've seen, so out of all of them that I'm like the least worried about, would be like a lecithin, like a, 
the I think there's like a sunflower lecithin that some of the chocolate companies add to their chocolate as an emulsifier. Yeah, and normally soy lecithin. Yeah, or soy lecithin. Yeah, not terrible, but it's still not ideal. There are chocolates that don't have that, but I overall I would try to avoid most of these if you can, um, and especially especially MS, MSG carrageenan. Citric acid's really hard, but yeah, citric acid, um, nitrates. I would I would avoid in your meats. Those are actually listed as carcinogens because of the interaction of the the nitrates with the meat um, produces certain compounds that have been like known to be carcinogenic towards the stomach and gastrointestinal tract and the colon specifically. So that's I think some of the association between processed meats and um, is because of the nitrates that they add to them. So I would avoid that. Really, a lot of these things, even artificial colors and um, like the, the different dyes and stuff they put in food, like a lot of those things are just just straight garbage. Like the industrial ad- additives are just pretty much just garbage added to the food. So I'd really try to avoid it as much as possible and stick to the as best as you can to the like the food source being just that food source. So orange juice is just orange juice if you can. You know, you're just buying steaks. There's no phosphate, sodium phosphate in your seafood. Like, I would avoid all of that as much as possible. Yeah. I'm just so, so a few things you mentioned I want to come back to. So, one, you mentioned like the listing of the ingredients and how normally these are the last ingredients, right? These additives tend not to be the main things, right? These are farther down. Uh, that being said, very small amounts of some of these can be still allergenic, still cause major problems as you're talking about. For example, citric acid coming from mold, which we talked about in that episode 39, those mold toxins can be a huge problem, even in really tiny amounts. Again, same with carrageenan, same with gums, even if they are some of those last ingredients, they can still all be problematic. That being said, and and I know you were saying it's always, it's best to avoid these, and I think that's true, although, of course, when we're looking at best, there's so many factors to consider. And I know, as an example, you will eat those Tate's cookies sometimes. I have no idea how often you're eating them currently or like when the last time was that you had them. So if you want to chime in there, feel free. But I know those are something you would go to when you were looking for some variety, looking to mix things up. Uh, just you were particularly hungry that day when you're at the grocery store, whatever it is, I don't want to speak for you. But those are things that I'll do too sometimes. Not that there's Tate's cookies out here, but uh, you know, equivalent things. Uh, what, you know, Maybe ice cream is a good example. Again, if you look at Haagen-Dazs ice cream, You've got milk, egg, sugar, vanilla. That's pretty much it. Maybe a, lo- a tiny bit of salt or something. And they don't include the gums or uh, carrageenan or anything like that in their main flavors. And that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, that's not just eating the milk separate from the eggs, but there's nothing wrong with mixing just individual ingredients. They're all good things. Uh, and it's not the worst thing either. We talked about this in that citric acid, ascorbic acid episode. If if your only source of decent quality juice is you know contains a bit of citric or ascorbic acid and you feel okay with it it's probably better than not getting any depending on what other foods you have available and what the other options are maybe the only fruit you have in the winter is canned peaches or canned lychees or something and they have some citric acid again that's probably better than not eating any at all uh so it's always contextual and while i agree it would be great if our foods didn't contain any of these the reality is that a lot of them do and also that we don't always have the benefit of just having those best individual quality ingredients, not to mention that sometimes we want to eat something that is unique and, and is a combination of those things and we don't always want to make it ourselves, in which case I think we can make good choices 
depending on how sensitive you are to these things and how damaging each one is individually. And so again, that like I, that's kind of I, I want to go through each of them individually a little bit and just explain like where they fall in that ranking or in that spectrum of yeah, this is a food that I know isn't great, but it's okay to have occasionally versus I really wouldn't eat this because of this ingredient. Uh, do do you have anything you want to add or or revise from what I said? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't have like the cookies. That's why I kind of mentioned them. Like you can't have a combination of products. But I think the idea would be like to just have products that your ice cream is, you're literally just cream, eggs, sugar, vanilla, etc., and not go for the ice cream options that have a whole bunch of other junk added to them. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. there's all there are food options like that, but I would really try to just like the way I see it is essentially like the best in health insurance policy is food. It's not, you know, blue blue cross blue shield or or whatever your health insurance is like the you know, the national health service whatever it is wherever you are. It's really your food quality and how you take care of yourself. Um and so for me, from my perspective, at least, if like I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to spend it on like the best quality food that I can possibly get within my means. Just be, number one, because like my entire functioning is better when I avoid a lot of these compounds. Like, mm-hmm. like for example, the citric acid makes me brain foggy if I have too much of it. Um, but also it like in the long run, I think it's just better overall from, for my health. Like I've, I do do the Tate's cookies sometimes, but like I, I trialed a period of time where I was eating them consistently and they were the, they were starting to irritate my stomach. And I was, I was pretty sure that was related to the, uh, the Xanthan gum. So yeah, there's a, it's, it's about like getting, like you want to know the ingredients on the package if you're going to eat the food. And then for the bulk of the diet, like I would say to have like, you know, the whole foods as the bulk of the diet that would be my my preference overall and you know there's there are these other options but i wouldn't make them the the majority and then as far as juices and all that go like obviously there's spectrum to everything there's a spectrum of options and we've gone through them before um so if you can get like not from concentrate organic you know there's some non-pasteurized juice options that's obviously the best i can't afford to drink that you know it's super expensive here in the U S to drink that juice on a regular basis. So the next best thing is like, there's a pasteurized juice, orange juice, not for concentrate that's organic. So I'll go for that one instead. So it's like, you gotta, you know, you, you work with what you got, you have to adapt to what you have and go with the best options that you have available. Yeah. So with that in mind, you know, kind of going through these ingredients one at a time, again, we both agree the care gene is one that we would avoid pretty much universally, regardless of whether it's, like regardless of the other ingredients of the food, regardless of how much we wanted it, it's one that we would really avoid uh, in terms of our striking that balance for ourselves. Uh, as far as the gums go for me, and it sounds like for you as well, well, I guess even to step back. So so what the gums are is they're basically prebiotic fibers, which means that they're going to feed whatever bacteria or microbes we have going on in our intestines. If you have, if so, you know, someone listening has a microbial imbalance or SIBO or something else going on, these are going to be particularly problematic because they're going to feed that issue. They are FODMAPs. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And, and so if that's not an issue for you, you might be totally fine with the gums, even in moderate amounts. might be totally fine. Again, the foods that you're finding them in are probably never going to be ideal for your main sources of food. But as as you know, supplementary foods, occasionally, they should be totally fine 
you know, it might vary based on the exact amount or the exact type. Most of the gums I would say are largely the same though, whether it's like Xanthan or uh Gum or Arabic Arabic. Arabic gum. Yeah, there's guar gum. Gar gaur gum, yeah. 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 So uh yeah, they're basically prebiotics. A lot of this is going to depend on your gut health, but if your gut health's all right, I would say it falls in the kind of yellow category. It's not something I would avoid at all costs. As you said, Mike, kind of the same for you, but probably wouldn't feel great if that was the main source of your carbs or like in involved in the main source of your carbs. Yeah. And for nitrates in your meat products, I would definitely try to avoid those as much as mm-hmm. possible yeah. just because of the they do have a pretty strong association with different issues inside the gastrointestinal tract because of the reactions that are formed between the nitrates and different components in the meat and stomach acid and all that type of stuff. So I would avoid those as much as possible. Like even if you're like for a lot of people, like beef jerky could be a snack that you eat on the go. I would avoid it. I would try to get a beef jerky that doesn't have nitrates in it. Um, Mm. That'd be pretty important. Sorbates. I don't see sorbates as much as in, I haven't seen them as much in the food options, at least personally that I have on a regular basis. I feel like it's usually potassium sorbate. Mm. um, And that's usually in much more processed food. It's, I haven't seen it too much in like quality juices, even like juices that aren't ideal. Um, I still don't see too much sorbates. It's usually in like the, the lower, like the lowest quality brands of juices. We'll put sorbate, citric acid, sorbic acid, uh, and then sulfites. And like, if your juice is, if you have all of that, I mean, if that's the only option you have, you know, it is what it is, mm-hmm. but that's like probably the last juice option I would go for if it's having all that type of stuff. So the sorbates, I don't see too much, but I, I don't, I try to avoid them, but I don't think that they're, they're like as terrible as like carrageenan. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It reminded me also, you mentioned the lecithin before, like the soy lecithin or sunflower lecithin. To me, again, and, and this is all going to vary based on anyone's individual uh, situation, but it's not something I would go out of my way to avoid and something like chocolate. Yeah. Of course, if there was two options that were equal and I liked them equally and one didn't have it, I would choose the one without it. But again, really kind of uh, something that I think is relatively minimal unless someone's particularly sensitive. I'd probably say the same with the potassium sorbate. And, you know, I agree with you there. And uh, in terms of the nitrates, I agree also. I would Those are those are ones I would certainly avoid. Uh We've talked a lot about problems with nitric oxide. Basically, it directly inhibits our ability to produce energy. So, uh, kind of in you know in connection with what we were talking about earlier, we want to be minimizing that. And uh, yeah, so that would include minimizing nitrates, which, as you said, also can be even more problematic because of their interaction with other compounds in the food. So, yeah, those would be ones I would avoid as well. Yeah, and then yeah, MSG. Uh, you mentioned MSG before. As one that you would avoid pretty pretty heavily. Yeah, I would definitely avoid MSG. I think yep. it has there's a bunch of negative effects from taking glutamate in that form and just like excessive amounts of glutamate in general from like a neuro excitatory perspective and mm-hmm. um yeah overall I, that's and that's usually like there since there was such a huge campaign in the United States on that that's usually in like some of the lowest quality food options. Because right. the other thing too is you can gauge the quality of your food to a large extent sometimes based on what the additives are in are are put in. If you have a like as I mentioned before, if you have a juice and they're throwing in like I think Juicy Juice does this, where it's like 
It's like citric acid, ascorbic acid, sulfites, all this type of stuff. It's like it is crap juice. And then it's mm. usually like they're usually like huge blends. Normally it's all apple or pear because that's the cheapest. Yeah, it's like first yeah. ingredient apple, second ingredient pear, and then it's like pineapple, orange, or whatever else after that. And then the bottle will list it as, oh, this is like, you know, orange mango juice when the base is apple. That yeah. is a low, extremely low quality product, like probably one of the worst on the market, I would say, except some of the like super off brands. And you can tell based on when they do stuff like that, you like know that they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel for their products. <laughs> yeah. And again, some people, you know, if you're talking a high quality apple juice that is organic, especially you want that with apples, that might be totally fine with a lot of people. But yeah. normally in, in the context you're talking about, we're talking about the lowest quality fruit juice and not organic and plus all the additives and yeah uh, those are some signs that it's not a good product it's like apples all over the world just all brought together in one big vat and then they just it, yeah i would if if that's all you have available and you you're gonna have juice and you don't tolerate starch well you know like sometimes it is what it is like i've definitely had lower quality juice like when i've had to fly in the airport and stuff like that like i was drinking minute made and stuff which isn't the yeah. best either yeah. but it's better than nothing um but yeah i would a lot of times you can tell that it's and you'll tell with the taste like like if it's so uniform or it tastes a little fake or it's or the taste is just like not super sweet you can really tell but yeah i would try to i would try to move towards like the higher quality options if you have that available definitely and And and, they're becoming more widespread too the like you can get palm pomegranate juice in a lot of places now and that's the ingredients on that is literally just pomegranate juice and water, like concentrated mm-hmm. in water. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's about finding that balance, right? So I have done that same thing where I would go with like even the simply orange, orange juice, you know, at the airport, because that one's supposed to be even better than the others. And I would feel pretty bad uh, if I had that kind of <laughs> yeah. like that quality orange juice or Tropicana or Minute Maid again, or simply, which is non-GMO and whatever else they say. So in that case, I would even just go for something sugar-based. I would either get like a lemonade or like a tea or something and add sugar to it. I would prefer to just have that than to have the low quality orange juice. Cause I feel better with that. I feel better with that than getting something with something with high fructose corn syrup also. So it's about testing out those different things, finding that balance and also having an understanding of the ingredients so you can make better informed experimentation. Yeah. I would say that what you want to see for a lot of products, as I mentioned earlier, is just like that singular ingredient. So if it is orange juice, it should be orange juice. There shouldn't be it, or orange juice concentrate in water. If there's ascorbic acid, okay, whatever. You know, if you're in the airport, you're whatever. It's all you have available at your grocery store, your strap for cash, whatever the deal is. Okay, that's fine. Um, but if you start seeing like, like if you're gonna go get grape juice and there's like 15 ingredients on there, it's like, m- m- how hard was it to just bottle grape juice, guys? You just squeeze the grapes, put them in the bottle. Like, okay, you need a preservative, put some vitamin C. But like what, what, like if they're doing all this other stuff, then, you know, those are usually bad indicators about the quality of food. And then again, like with ice cream, you're going to have more than one ingredient because it's not just frozen cream. Right. Um, But when you're looking at those ingredients, like we know what cane sugar is, we know what cream is, we know what egg yolks are, we know what um, salt is, but it's like xanthan gum, potassium sorbate, uh, FDC yellow number seven, like. When you start seeing all that stuff, it's like, okay, now we're in, now this is garbage quality if they're going to have to add all this type of stuff. So it's best to avoid when you start seeing that and go for options that have 
less ingredients and ingredients that are more widely known and that are easily recognizable. Um, and then obviously there's the whole non-GMO, which would be ideal and organic. And then with juices, the not from concentrate stuff. But again, like I would say the base quality to get to reach towards is the options that don't have all these industrial additives, even if it's not a organic, like, cause a lot of people come to me, Oh, like I have to do this hundred percent organic. It's like, no, you don't. You don't want it to be 100% organic. Like, is it better? Yes. But what do you have available to you? What's your re- what are your resources like? What can you afford? And and go from there. What is the best option that you can afford for you? And what is the best option that in your cer- certain circumstance? Like I work, I have a client right now who works as a, as a truck driver. It's like, he's not going to be able to meal prep every day. And he's not going to be able to eat, you know, you know org- organic 100% of the time. But if he has high quality beef jerky, if he has some quality whey protein that he bought online and he has some quality uh, like collagen protein and then he has quality chocolate, when he goes to the truck stops or or gas stations or some of these other markets, whatever it is, the, there's options there where he can say, OK, I'm going to get palm pomegranate juice and I'm going to get this orange juice and I'm going to make a blend and the ingredients aren't terrible and he still feels better than eating out restaurant food. So it's like, does it have to be 100 percent organic? No. Does it have to be the most perfect, pristine food option? No, but it's the best for try and make the best decision given the circumstances that you have. So it's a spectrum. Absolutely. And you touch on the organic piece. And again, there's so much that's going to vary there based on the type of food, the type of juice, like the, the fruit that it's coming from. And so, yeah, there's a lot of factors to consider. I don't know if we've talked about that specifically before. If not, maybe we'll have to do that, you know, talk about that in the future. But yeah, there's a lot to consider. And again, these, these additives are one of those, but as you're saying too, it's a matter of in a lot of situations doing the best with what you've got, but also understanding what that best is, what are those best options? So to circle back to a couple other food additives, just to, to get into some specifics here, the MSG, we agree, problematic excess of uh, glutamate being a major excitotoxic uh, problem. And so, uh, yeah, that would be one that we'd want to avoid. And then you mentioned like artificial colors a couple of times. You mentioned like the the yellow and there's a few others. And and these are ones that I would also go out of my way to avoid. Again, falling probably similar in that, uh, similar to the carrageenan and MSG category. I would really go out of my way to avoid the artificial colors. For one, it's just how frustrating. It's like there's literally no need for them. And there are natural options that are just from food that you can be used that can be used for coloring and don't have any even controversy around them being toxic in the same way. Uh, so yeah, but there, there's a lot of concern about the artificial colors being uh, toxic and, and having various problematic effects and something that I know, I know of several parents and, and clients who are parents who mentioned that they can see a huge change in their children's behavior when they have something that has colors, of course, it's generally worse quality food. So there's some confounding variables there as well. But yeah, that's that's one that would go out of my way uh, to avoid and, and is also quite frustrating since it's so unnecessary to have colored food. But <laughs> that's that's just how it is. Well, especially there are better colored options. Like right. I know there's all the organic brands will put in like different like vegetable extracts for colors now. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just like they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel to produce the lowest quality products available for with that type of stuff and it's just it's it's disappointing to see food manufacturers doing things like that yeah. the one product that i 
The one thing I want to mention that is always a hard no, no matter like what else the other ingredients are in a food. If I pick up a food and I see any vegetable oil in there, it's mm. automatically a no. I don't care what. Yeah. I would rather fast than eat that. That a lot of the vegetable oil, like whether it's different types of chips, whatever it is, even if there's a small amount, if it's a dip or whatever, it's just like, nope, that's, an, I don't care if there was no industrial additives of canola oil or soybean oil or sunflower oil, whatever is added, which is just not, that's a hard no. Yeah, I, I will, I'll, I'm going to throw in a couple exceptions on my end. So one is that sometimes you'll see, talking about first versus last ingredients, sometimes you'll see like a really small amount of an oil at the very end of the ingredient list. And if you know, it's like, less than the amount of salt or less than the amount of some spice or something they're using it for some reason that it's not like the main uh the main part of the food you can also look at the label and see how much fat is in there so as an example i know sometimes with with certain dried fruit they'll add a really tiny bit of sunflower oil i think to like keep it from clumping together and if you look at the label it'll show you know 30 to 40 grams of carbs zero grams of fat You'll see that the the oil is the last ingredient. Normally, there's only like one or two ingredient or two or three ingredients anyway. Uh, so that would be a situation where I wouldn't be so concerned about that oil. I would try to find an option without it, but uh, that would be a situation again where I would say it's not such a concern. And you mentioned that you'd rather fast instead of eat something that is vegetable oil. For me, it would probably depend on how hungry I was and what the food was. <laughs> but no, I'd fast. Yeah, and and it depends also. Like I've had times where I've unknowingly eaten a decent amount of vegetable oil at a restaurant or what I assumed was that and felt terrible after the, you know, the entire next day potentially. And so that's something, you know, I would definitely go out of my way if I have choices. Sometimes if I'm, you know, if there aren't choices, it might be something I go with, but again, I go out of my way to make sure that I have choices and bring food for most of those situations. Of course there are exceptions and sometimes I'll have some and it's, you know, and I feel okay after two, it, it really varies, but, uh, I'm I'm with you in the sentiment and the vast majority of the time. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a spot where I was like for like it was either eating or like not it was either eating something with vegetable oil or not eating. I think there's I've always had the opportunity. I've either brought food with me mm-hmm. or there was other options around that I could kind of make it work, right? Whereas like I could there was a juice for me to buy or there was like a soda that wasn't terrible as far as cane sugar, maybe it had citric acid, but I was okay with that. And I was like still able to, to do something or I had, there's like beef jerky or something that didn't have oil. Cause like a lot of times we'll be like traveling and in airports or gas stations, there's still like, they still have like, even gas stations now are getting like grass fed beef jerky (laughs) in there. Even when I was like driving from New Jersey to Florida, I was like along the way in the South, we were stopping in these little these just country gas stations and there's grass fed beef jerky. <laughs> so it was, even if I didn't have food prepared, there was still a lot of great options. And then they were also had some pretty good juice options, which I was surprised, mm. you know, it wasn't terrible. And then there are always sodas in the gas stations too. So, but I would always, I generally prefer to go with juice. I don't drink too much soda. Yeah. There's, there's been situations traveling through Latin America where I've, it's been either eat something with, with vegetable oil or don't eat. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah, but and, and also situations, you know, as you said too, where there's no quali- there's no good quality juice, there's no good quality beef jerky, things like that, and uh, have to make some some other choices again because because of what's available. But those situations are very rare, very few and far between, and I tend to prepare pretty well for these things. But uh, yeah, things like that happen anyway. It's it's all about 
having the knowledge and making those choices and making the best choices and experimenting and seeing how you feel when you make certain choices and then, you know, for next time. Yeah. There, there's a couple other food ingredients I wanted to touch on that are specifically dairy based. And sometimes I get some questions about these. Sometimes also it's just things that I bring up with my clients that they're not so aware of. One of them is the enzymes used for cheese where Traditionally, cheese was made with what's called animal rene, where they're getting basically enzymes from uh, animal products. And more industrially, they tend to use microbial enzymes. And those microbial enzymes can have some irritating effects and allergenic effects, much like what we've talked about in terms of something like citric acid. And so some people are totally fine when they have a cheese that's made with microbial enzymes. Some will react poorly to that. And so I always recommend the animal Renee over the microbial enzymes when that's an option and then paying attention to how you feel when you have one or the other, just as again, something to pay attention to there can be allergenic and irritating. And then the last one uh, in terms of food additives overall, but also specifically with dairy. And I guess this also applies to other foods as well is all the probiotics and cultures that they're now adding to a lot of foods because probiotics are just universally healthy. It doesn't matter what strain or what types or anything or the amounts, you just throw it in food and it makes the food healthy nowadays. And so those are things that I would be very weary of. Uh, There's, I've seen quite a few instances and some for myself where people react poorly to those cultures. They again, cause digestive irritation, which sometimes when we talk about that, somebody might think like, so what you, Maybe you just feel slightly like a little bit of discomfort or something for a bit. But these are things that can contribute to other issues. It it can drive microbial problems where you end up with microbial imbalances. You can drive endotoxin production. You can cause weight gain and swelling and water retention. There's real effects of these things beyond just feeling a little bit bad for a period of time if you do. So I'm very wary of any probiotics or cultures that are added to any food. And when it comes to dairy, you want to be aware of these in yogurt. Uh, kefir, cottage cheese. I think those are the main ones, but sometimes they add them, I think, to other ones as well. So definitely want to be aware of those. With something like cottage cheese, there's, I don't remember what the name of it is, but there's like a traditional culture or bacteria that they normally use. And that one seems to be pretty benign, but sometimes they add other ones in for the probiotic benefits. Uh, So that's one I'd be wary of. Again, with yogurt, because of those cultures added, I think that there are some possible issues there. And I tend to lean toward other forms of dairy. And then with kefir, the kefir that you're finding in the store is normally, I want to say they pasteurize it and then add probiotic, quote unquote, probiotic yeah, cultures back in. Yeah, they add in. cultures after. Yeah, those are all questionable as well. Uh, it's very different from getting a true raw kefir that, again, you're still potentially rolling the dice a bit. You're still getting whatever cultures are in. Normally, it's grains, I, I believe, that they use to create the kefir. Sometimes they can have a lot of benefits. Sometimes they can have drawbacks. But the point here being that this is another set of ingredients that I would be aware of and be semi-weary of, and I would tend to lean away from. And we've talked in the past about just probiotics as a whole and how they are not just universally benign and beneficial, and they can cause quite a few issues. They can actually cause intestinal overgrowth with the types of cultures that are being added in. So you can have SIBO with the probiotic culture by eating the probiotic or taking it. So I've seen that with kombucha. I've seen people yeah, who slam kombucha one. a lot. They'll... <laughs> They've getting, they get SIBO from the yeast that they put in there, or I guess CIFO, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm sure that maybe the bacteria too. Uh, but yeah, and again, it's going to depend on the type of uh, kombucha and what exact cultures are used, and some could be particularly beneficial and some might not. 
So sometimes it's a matter of researching a particular strain. Sometimes it's a matter of just paying attention. How do you feel? And uh, yeah, making choices with these things in mind. I've never seen a kefir in a in a grocery store use kefir grains. Mm-hmm. It's always listed species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. And a lot of the kefirs that I've seen in the store are just garbage quality. Right. Like they, it's like all the strains and then yogurt and a whole bunch of other ingredients and gums. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to. Fu- I haven't seen one personally where it's like, which is the initial kefir recipe is just put at least from the I think the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia was just take like goat or sheep's milk and put it in a bag that was like uh like the like a sheep's milk uh it was like the stomach of the sheep or the goat or whatever they mm-hmm. had it hung up they put it in there um and then they let it like sit on the door for an extended period of time and then it would ferment and sour and that was how the kefir was formed now it's pasteurized dairy throw in a whole bunch of other ingredients so that is you know mango kefir whatever it is and then um put add the cultures afterwards this like list of specific cultures which i have no idea why they choose the ones that they choose and they don't even list the strain the specific strains on them most times mm-hmm. and then like add a whole bunch of guns and additives so that it, like looks great and it's like super sweet and has all this like a whole list of other ingredients and whatnot yeah, yeah. i tend to stay i would I would say like higher quality yogurts would pro- from the grocery store would probably be a better option than any kefirs if you weren't trying to have any fermented dairy. Probably. I still generally recommend leaning away from the yogurts unless you unless someone is confident that they do really well with it. Uh, I've seen even the best quality, you know, Greek yogurts uh, from grass-fed cows still lead to water retention, weight gain, especially like uh, abdominally things like that. So I I tend to recommend leaning away from it, but again, some people do fine. So, uh, it can all, it can all vary. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you had mentioned, I, I don't know if I, maybe I missed it, but they do use a grain when they, uh, like certain types of grains when they do the, when they create the kefir and they, in yeah, like so traditionally, yeah. in the traditional bag that they would ferment it in, there would be kefir grains, which is essentially mm-hmm. like the, the biofilm colonies of bacteria and yeast that form from the fermentation of the milk. And you don't remove the grains; they stay in the bag, and you just put the, you just keep putting the milk back in there, and it'll ferment it, and it like kind of builds up over time. Obviously, okay. if you have too much grain, you remove it. I mean, I I tried kefir for a while, so I had grains, mm-hmm. and I would was taking raw goat milk, and I was mixing it with the raw goat milk kefir grains, and then I would finish, and I'd put that in. You know, I I would take out, I would drink all the fluid, I would add the raw goat milk in, and it would ferment again. I didn't have all, you know, the the sack or whatever that they use traditionally, but <laughs> had a mason jars. That's what I was doing. Yeah, I know we both did some some raw kefir for a while. Mine was from a local goat farm, and I felt like it seemed to help clear things out at the time. The first time I did it, I had the I literally like crapped my brains out for like the first. So I took it, I did the kefir. Um, I think I did like a four ounce glass to start, which mm-hmm. was way too much. Mm-hmm. and it just like as soon as it hit my stomach like literally an hour later i started sweating i was like oh i'm sweating and then it hit me and i was like out to <laughs> out to lunch and i was like i had i had to like go home because i knew it was gonna be bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely something to be careful with uh, yeah, it was super sure. strong and that was from a raw that it was raw kefir i purchased with kefir grains from an amish farm mm. so it was like the real deal like 
like there was mm-hmm. grains inside the kefir that I purchased. I and like in the little glass, like I had some kefir grains. <laughs> it was very strong. Yeah, and and just for reference, because I I wasn't aware of this, the the grains. It's just the cultures. They just call it grain because it resembles like little grains. Yeah, the p- colonies look like little rice grains. Yeah, it's just bacteria and, and yeast like cultures. It's not actually grains like like wheat or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. It's just the bacteria and yeast. Yeah, just called grains. Okay, do you have anything else to add in terms of food additives or other harmful food ingredients? I can't think of any off. I was trying to think of some off the top of my head. Titanium dioxide or silicon dioxide in supplements are things that I would highly recommend avoiding. I don't think magnesium stearate or microcrystalline cellulose are terrible, Mm -hmm. but I would really try to avoid the titanium dioxide. And I've worked with quite quite a few clients, and and including myself, where the supplement like additives jacked up their stomachs and like gave like all types of intestinal irritation. I just want people to to also know that like silicon dioxide is in a sense or kind of like powdered glass. <laughs> um, so I would that's kind of how I describe it, and I've and I've been seriously irritated by it. So I avoid pretty much all supplements that have that. Um, and then sometimes I think capsules, the caps, the encapsulation, like the actual capsules, can be problematic yeah. for people. So yeah. I tend to recommend opening them. Um, and it just depends on the person. Some people are tanks and they don't feel anything, and others it's like. Their symptoms come just with, you know, a small amount of of uh, flow agent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's also the concern with the silicone and titanium dioxide that there's uh, industrial contamination because of the way that they're produced. So, yeah, the, those are things to consider. And, yeah, with supplements, I tend to lean toward uh, powders and things that have no other ingredients when possible. Even though yeah. it's less convenient, I think it's, it's, uh, it's generally worth going that that direction yeah and there are some companies that like pure encapsulations nutribio i know mm-hmm. like ideal labs his georgie doesn't add like too many bad additives or anything like that um health natra i think forefront has some stuff that doesn't have like the mm-hmm. extra additives and then there's a company pure bulk so all yeah. of those are and bulk supplements you know, and bulk supplements yeah um, but all of those companies, you know, they don't have a lot of additives. You can buy straight powders or their liquids or the formulations that they have don't have like a lot of junk in them. But again, even with those companies, your mileage will vary in your tolerance. Like there's some supplements, even from those companies that I just do not do well with. And I like, regardless of what it is, like I'll take a pregnenolone from one company versus a pregnenolone from another company. And the ingredients on the pregnenolone from one of the companies will wreck me. Whereas the other one, I take it as a powder and I have no problem. So it really depends on your tolerance to different things. And mm-hmm. um, you have to test. It always comes down to individually testing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think any other ingredients come to mind for me, but I'm sure we'll both think of a bunch afterward and we'll have to include them in the future. <laughs> okay. All right. So, the next question again, I hope I don't mess this name up. Aditya, uh, she says, or he says, uh, can you make a video on hyperthyroidism? Nobody talks about it in the community. And we haven't even done an episode or series yet talking about hypothyroidism or thyroid health or thyroid function as a whole, which I'd like to do at some point. And, uh, but I wanted to just touch on this one real quick. And I think the first piece that I would say here is that the reason why 
people generally don't talk about it very much is because I, I think it's very rare compared to hypothyroidism. And I think a lot of the symptoms and lab values attributed to hyperthyroidism often are still signs of hypothyroidism. And I know that's something that Ray Pete has talked about quite a bit, where generally what people are looking for when they're talking about hyperthyroidism is uh, adrenaline type symptoms, like really fast heart rate, sometimes fatigue and weakness, uh, excessive hunger and things like that. Wasting. And as an example, what's that? Like wasting. There's like yeah, a yeah. cachexia associated with it. Yeah. And as an example, I know that Ray's talked about how he was in a similar state uh, as that. He felt like he was eating, I think he said 10,000 calories a day. He was also pretty active at the time. He had like a manual labor type job. And taking thyroid actually allowed him to decrease that considerably. And he felt way better and didn't have those same, quote, hyperthyroid symptoms by taking thyroid, which of course would not improve hyperthyroidism. It would make it worse. And so I think what we're kind of seeing here is that when someone is severely, severely hypothyroid or very hypothyroid, you can see a couple things. One is you can see a strong suppression of TSH on the labs due to stress. And we've talked about this in the past, how stress in and of itself, the stress hormones will do a couple of things. It'll decrease the conversion from T4 to T3, and it'll also suppress TSH. And so you can have a very, very low TSH not because you have good thyroid health, but because you're under a lot of stress and you're actually severely hypothyroid. So that's one piece to consider. Of course, also, the tendency towards stress hormones will increase with hypothyroidism. So again, if somebody is always in an adrenalized state, that can be because of, just kind of, you know, like raise the example with repeat, that can be because of hypothyroidism, not hyperthyroidism. Now, all of that being said, of course, hyperthyroidism does exist, and you can have the general, I would say, that you've got the autoimmune cause, the Graves' disease, and that does exist, and it is a legitimate issue, in which case, I think it comes back to really an autoimmune problem more than anything else, in which case I would reference back to our autoimmune series, which basically all of that information would apply to this sort of an autoimmune state and potentially reversing or stopping or improving it. So... That would be my main thoughts there. I will say the other thing too is that you can obviously get into what you could call a hyperthyroid state by taking too much thyroid or too much T3 or too much T4. Again, I don't think I've ever seen that though. I've seen people have have significant stress symptoms, uh, heart rates over 100, you know, resting heart rate, you know, high 90s or 100. Uh, but from overdosing T3? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are high doses. Probably, <laughs> I'm talking high doses, you know, 150 micrograms or more or something like that. But oh, those are heroic doses, <laughs> or maybe 100 micrograms or more. Uh, yeah. So there's there are certain T3 based protocols that uh, sometimes might warrant that. But even on even on desiccated thyroid or uh, like a Sinoplus type thing, synthetic T3, T4, even on low doses of T3, even very low doses, again, three micrograms a few times a day, five micrograms a few times a day. Sometimes just having too much in an individual dose will cause it. Uh, so the, I think there's two presentations. One is just it will cause an increase in stress hormones without causing like what you would see as hyperthyroidism on labs, where someone will not be able to tolerate that small amount of T3. Let's say they'll they'll fall into that stress state very very easily, and it's really hard to you know you have to kind of titrate that dose up really quick really slowly while working on the foundations to help to increase tolerance so to speak or capacity for thyroid uh and for stimulation but i've seen also where someone has some mild hyperthyroid symptoms they're taking a lot of thyroid 
and their TSH is fully suppressed, you know, like 0.00, or they always say like less than 0.01 or whatever it is that their testing uh, apparatus can can measure. So I have seen those situations where someone feels better, you know, they're on too high of a dose and they feel better when they reduce it slightly and are finding that sweet spot. It, yeah, I don't think it's particularly common, but I've seen it happen. I haven't seen it become like overt hyperthyroidism, though. I've seen people like with super suppressed TSH and I've seen people not tolerate the thyroid, like thyroid hormone well. Although running some of those super, like bodybuilders run ridiculously high doses of thyroid hormone to cut. And I've seen them get really, I've seen on people get bad responses from that. Mm-hmm. But like for people like who slowly titrated up their thyroid dose, like I haven't seen them go into like overt. Because like hyper, hyperthyroidism in a lot of, at least what I see in the hospital when I've seen is like emergencies. <laughs> Like, yeah, like, yeah. like their heart rates are like 140 and 150 and they can't put on, they can't keep on weight. And like they have, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. I'm talking much more mild symptoms, of course, much more mild hyperthyroid states. But in those, I think a lot of those situations though, the people who I've seen with like actual hyperthyroidism, like it wasn't because their thyroid was just functioning so well that it was putting out thyroid, putting out thyroid hormone T3, T4. Because they had like underlying pathology um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with and a lot of times like with Graves disease, there was like destruction of the thyroid gland with, with release of thyroid hormone. So the question was more along the lines of like figuring out what the trigger was less than just blasting the thyroid because that's right, what course, they wind up doing from the modern medical perspective. And now right. what I will say is when I have seen people with after they've gotten their thyroid radio ablated or mm-hmm. or they've um use different compounds like the what's his methamaxazole i think is what it is um where it essentially will shut down thyroid hormone function all types of problems happen after that especially heart related problems and i had like had a patient last week with that in the hospital where she like went into heart failure after they basically radio ablated her thyroid her and they put her on some uh a synthroid and then which is just synthetic t4 only and she was extremely hypothyroid. She before she had it, and when she was hyperthyroid, they couldn't get her heart rate down. And now her heart rate was like bradycardic, so slow. And now she was going like she was developing heart failure because and heart failure can be associated strongly with like a low T three. Um, and some there was something going on in that family wherever they were living because the all of them had thyroid issues. Like every the husband had thyroid issues. He had, the doctors had actually put him in a, uh, almost put him in a myxedema coma with the medications from suppressing his thyroid so much and they had to reverse it. Um, and then the son had also had, had thyroid issues and also heart issues. So whatever they were being exposed to on a regular basis, and I don't think it's genetics, but I, I think whatever they were being exposed to on a regular basis, like where they were living, whatever it was was causing some type of issues with all of their thyroid glands um, and leading them to develop like these these problems essentially. But yeah, every every single person I've seen from my N equals one experience who have had their thyroid glands destroyed and then put on replacement therapy have developed serious issues like down the line. And I think that's partly because the problem wasn't solved. It was like you have this serious inflammatory immune response going on damaging the thyroid and then they go into like hyperthyroidism from the like from the body's response to that and then it's like okay we're just going to destroy your thyroid so now you're not hyperthyroid and then we'll replace but you still never corrected the underlying pathology so now you don't have a thyroid 
you're on synthetic thyroid hormone, which a lot of these people considering their state are unlikely to convert into active T3, which is dependent upon body state. So now they're like hypothyroid with that problem. <laughs> and it's just when they were hypothyroid, it, there was medical emergency there. But I also like I questioned the idea, you know, I was when I saw the representation of what had happened, like 50 years old, they were in there. This one guy was in his 50s and absolute heart failure and like serious neurological issues. I'm just like it's crazy. And as that, he's like, yeah, it all started after they, they destroyed my thyroid. And he's like, they did it to my mom. They did it to my sister. And they have the same problems as me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen quite a few issues. I've, I've had quite a few clients who have either had radioactive iodine therapy or thyroidectomies entirely uh, due to supposed hyperthyroid situations. And uh, yeah, definitely is a struggle afterward to get back to decent health. And as you're saying, these tend to be autoimmune situations. And if that is the case, the autoimmune issue is the problem, not actually the hyperthyroidism. And so again, I would reference back, we did a whole series talking about autoimmune issues and what really causes them. And with that in mind, how to actually go about improving and reversing them. Not that it's an easy path, but it is, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot that can be done without just the removal of the organ that is in under the autoimmune attack, so to speak, uh, or complete suppression of the immune system, which is normally the, the two routes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that a hundred percent. Just even from what I've seen in the hospital, people who have undergone these different therapies, yeah. therapies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. Today's episode was a Q&A episode. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can leave those in the comments if you're watching on YouTube, or you can send those in uh, by email to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's J-A-Y at J-A-Y feldmanwellness.com. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, whether that is chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, joint pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms, brain fog, poor sleep or insomnia, or hormonal imbalances, or various other low energy symptoms or chronic health issues or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.